Well, this is a, uh, a really fascinating passage for a number of reasons. First of all, it's possibly one of the most identified and moving stories of all the Gospels. There's many people that when they think of Jesus, when they think of his grace, when they think of his mercy, are often going to think of the woman caught in adultery. And of course, it's not only that, it's where we draw a lot of our phrases and cliches. I mean, the whole idea of he without sin cast the first stone is a phrase that if you say that, everyone in our culture knows what that means. Uh, but this is also a really mysterious story. There's a lot of details in here that just as I read, as you read, our, our staff reads the text every Tuesday before our staff meeting, or, or the way we start our staff meeting, and we always just kind of like make observations, and we just came up with a lot of questions, like we typically do. <laughs> and uh, it's a mysterious text. I will say this too, I, uh, I was really, really helped this week by a, te or by a Hebrew theologian uh, named L. Grover Fricks, uh, and an interview she did on the Baymont podcast, which is a podcast that Caleb actually showed to me. Caleb Hale, our music director, showed to me, and I found it to be uh, very interesting. They go through John uh, in that podcast, and there's parts of it that are great. There's parts of it I'm like, oh, that, that's way different than I would have uh, I see happening. But regardless, uh, I was listening to this and listening to her interview, and, and I was like, this is just brilliant. I mean, it. I learned so much this week. I mean, usually when I study... Uh, I'm just checking to know, make sure that I already know it all, because I'm awesome. But <laughs> this week, I learned a lot, and I have to, so I have to give credit to Elf Grover Fricks, because I'm just going to take a lot of her stuff and represent. Um, so it's a mysterious story. It's also a controversial story. Uh, and part of the first reason is because what you see at the very beginning of the text, if you look at chapter 8, interestingly enough, chapter 8 begins with verse 53, not verse 1, and that's because it includes verse 53 of chapter 7. And I'm assuming, uh, if you were looking at a, one of the Bibles that we have, or I'm assuming even in your Bible, it is going to say right above the text in brackets, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then you'll see the text in double brackets, all the way, as we say, from 53 down to 811. Then you see the closing of the double brackets. What's up with the double brackets? The double brackets are here to... Again, just make that point. We find our scriptures, our scriptures, we don't have the original uh, copies of the book of John. We don't even have the copy of the copies. We don't have the copies of the copies of the copies. And I've actually, a number of years ago, I did teaching about that, of like how the manuscript tradition is actually, doesn't make it actually less likely that we have the original words, but actually it gives us more confidence. But that's another teaching, and we might even link that in the podcast this week. Uh, but in it, there are certain parts of scripture that, show up all of a sudden, like we were like tracking along and there's an early manuscript that doesn't have it and then all of a sudden one that does. This one in particular shows up in 384 AD is the first time we get it. So I mean this is, you know, about 300 years after John is written. We're going to date John around the 80s to 90 AD and so about 300 years later this text shows up in the manuscripts. Uh, and there's a lot of internal and external evidence. If you look at the script, like the internal characteristics of it and also the external like historicity that we know around it that suggest it is legit and that it's not. There's, you can make a pretty compelling argument for both. Uh, I would also say this one is similar to the ending of Mark or what we call the long ending of Mark. If you look at the end of Mark, you will also find 
one of the very, uh, the, the end of it is double bracketed. And it'll say again, the earliest manuscripts don't include this text. Now, in the early ending, of, or the long ending of Mark, it's a little bit like, okay, we're willing to accept it, because part of that is the Great Commission, and so we're like, okay, we know that from other, uh, other texts, we know that from Matthew, we, we know the Great Commission happened, so even if this wasn't original, we're okay to you know, say yes, that, that did happen. But I will say that this one is held more in suspect because it doesn't appear anywhere else. And that's not unusual for John. He has the most unique stories of Jesus. He, again, probably, well, not probably, was definitely interacting with the Gospels that came before him. They were all written much before him. So at the end of his life, he decides to include very different stories to present a very similar argument, a very similar desire to show that Jesus is Lord and that he's the Messiah and that he's come to bring his kingdom and that all people can find freedom and be brought into the kingdom because of him. But he uses very different stories to tell that. And... I will say this, too. Um, I, I mean, again, other stories that show up uniquely in John. The wedding of Cana, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, raising of Lazarus from the dead. They don't show up in any of the, of the other Gospels. And that, uh, I will say also, they, if you track this text itself, if you look at other manuscripts, it even shows up sometimes in different places. There's sometimes where it shows up in chapter 7. In some places, uh, see, actually, it's the Gregorian transcripts that shows up in chapter 7. Sometimes it shows up in chapter 8, but later in the chapter. Uh, sometimes it shows up in the Arminian transcripts in John 21 at the end of the book. And then some, there are even a few transcripts that it shows up in Luke, which is fascinating. And so all these places where it comes, they, these show up really late. These are like the 9th to 15th century. So yeah, again, we're talking like 900 years after the book was written. And so the idea that it shows up in all those different places is Likely, those are just transcriptural errors, things that just got moved around. But this is interesting, too. All the most famous manuscripts that we have of John do include this. So with, like, the longest, the most renowned, the ones that we really talk about, they all name them after letters or numbers. And, you know, they, they're, they're, there's the R, there's the P23, there's all these different manuscripts. All the major famous ones do include it. Now, again, not the earliest ones. And so... You can also read the fact that the previous chapter, if you go from 7 and you go straight to 12, it actually fits. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he has this long conversation with them, and then in 12 it says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, and so you can say, okay, it fits if you take it out. It also fits decently if you leave it in. It's, again, a lot of questions to say, okay, what do you do with this? I'll also give you these quick just statistics, too. You're like, okay, how much does this show up versus not show up in different manuscripts? Uh, well, this, uh, is, I actually have a slide. So, uh, it shows up in 95.9 .9 of the Greek manuscripts. They have it, and they have it in this location. So, it's, it's overwhelmingly, it does show up in chapter, beginning of chapter 8, it does show up in most manuscripts. Remaining 4% have it either elsewhere, so they do have it, but elsewhere, or they don't include it at all. In raw numbers, if you look at that, that is 1,427 manuscripts include it and have it in this location, whereas 58 manuscripts have it somewhere else. But again, the earlier ones have it somewhere else. So, either it was taken out at the very beginning. It was included in John, and someone removed it. Or some group removed it, and it removed from history for a while, and then eventually gets re-added back in. Uh, that could have been, potentially, people would hypothesize that uh, that was an antinomianism movement. So antinomianism is... The movement that says, because of salvation, we no longer have to obey the law whatsoever. 
and there was a fear concern that like you know people would start to take adultery really glibly and and women would start to see like oh like this is no big deal men would start to see hey you know jesus forgave this this is no problem and they would just start throwing sexual purity out the window and so it was removed it's also possible it was added later by the early church but it represents the actual story that did happen so it's a story that yeah many people know yes this did happen it just wasn't original to the writing of john or it could be completely made up it's possible so you can do a couple things with it you can reject it if in doubt throw it out like what we don't need it Uh, there is not a single unique doctrine or theology from this text there's nothing that falls apart if you don't have this text same with the ending of mark a lot of people say like oh man there's these parts of the bible that you know may or may not have been in there and if you take those out, like, how do we know what, you know, was really true? If you take John, I mean, there's not a single creed that says, I believe in the God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, dot, 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 and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, and I believe that there was this woman in the well, literally, who came up to Jesus, and dead, he drew in the ground, and it was kind of weird, but I believe it. Like, there's not a creed that's going to say, this has to be true for our faith. So you can reject it. Uh, you can read it as... Again, a story that is true and was added later. I would say also, you can study and meditate on, meditate on it as you do the rest of the book of John with one thing in mind, or a few things in mind. I'd say this. Again, there's a good deal of evidence it's real. Also, as you read it, it's consistent with the person of Jesus. It does seem to reflect who he is doesn't give this large contrast. A lot of the texts that are, you know, just completely rejected from Scripture present a completely different picture. Of it con- they, they go against what Scripture says. They go against what we know Jesus to be. And this one is a consistent picture of who Jesus is. Secondly, it's consistent with Scripture. There's nothing that it contradicts. Now, you could say, well, actually, it's going to contradict Deuteronomy here in a minute in the law because he's going to say and rather than stoning this woman we should go ahead and, and forgive her but Jesus was also known to say hey you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth but I say to you love your enemy so it would not be inconsistent with Jesus to take something that was in the Torah and say I want to interpret this further in a different way but it's still very much so upholding the Torah so with all that I would say this would honestly be in a lot of ways an easier text to skip because again it's got a lot of mysteries it's got a lot of unusual questions however that's not unusual for the book of john but let's talk about the couple of questions that come up and to do that we'll jump back in the text starting with 53. they went each to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now Moses gave us the law commanding us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Pause there. First of all, just this isn't really edifying in any way, but I just find it funny that 53 is also in the brackets. They're like, they each went to his own house. Like, we don't know that. We don't know that they went to their own house. They could have gone to other people's houses. They could have gone to the market. Like, let's just not, let's not have any confidence that they went to their own house. Um, but then also you see one of the first questions that came up in our staff reading of it, one of the first questions that comes up a lot, where's the man 
We have a woman caught in adultery. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. In order to be caught in the act of adultery, the man was present. That's how that worked. Um, that's all I can say about that right now. Uh, ask questions elsewhere if you need. Um, and it's interesting, you say. I mean, there's, there was also a way for what Jesus was being asked to do, to judge her. And this actually comes from Numbers 5. If there's just a woman and you're unsure if she's caught in adultery, it says this, and this is crazy. Look at this. Verse 11, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses from Numbers 5, uh, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from his eyes of her, uh, the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not being taken in the act, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and being, uh, being the offering required of her, or bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an F of barley flour, he shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on, uh, frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness, and he shall make the women drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out to the woman, hand it, and, she, uh, and shall wave the grain before the Lord, or offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial portion, and burn it on the altar. And afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the, women shall, the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Really helpful that we have a really interesting text, or a really interesting uh, test to be able to figure that out. Um, crazy, again. But again, this is not the situation. They are claiming to have witnesses of her adultery. And in that case, you would go to Deuteronomy 22, 22. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. This was a honor killing. You would, in a honor and shame culture, which in some ways we're starting to get more because they're starting to get a lot more honor and shame culture into our culture. That's kind of like the whole like piling on or canceling this person or whatever. It's just like, you know, is this person honorable? Is this person shameful? Can I associate myself with this person? Do I want to distance myself from this person? We're getting a little bit more of it, but honestly, we're still, we're way too individualistic of a culture to really understand a communal honor shame culture, which is your entire purpose was to work and to bring honor to your community, not to yourself, and then to your family. And then lastly, you would receive honor yourself. And you would make a name that would bring your community, your whole family, deeper senses of honor. And if you had someone who, in your community, was dishonorable, then a way that you would protect the community's honor is you would perform an honor killing. You would say, this is clearly, we want to distance ourselves from this person, from their dishonorable actions. And so we'd break with them, and either you would kill them or you would at least exile them out of the community. And there's a couple things I just I want to say here of what's going on here. Why is the man not present? 
Uh, it's possible that this is part of what the leaders are trying to trap Jesus in. Possibly, again, they're trying to test his knowledge. They want to see, hey, is he going to do this really crazy test to find out if this woman is actually, you know, is he going to do the water of bitterness and drink it, and are we going to, like, see that all play out? Or they also could possibly be saying they're wanting him to condemn her and never ask about the man because, hey, Deuteronomy 22, 22, and he condemns her. He's like, clearly we have to condemn her, but he never asks about the man. Why didn't you know that Deuteronomy 22, 22 told us to do that? It could be possible that this is an example of the devaluation de of women being less in the image of God than a man, and that was common in the culture. Or possibly this is John's way, uh, and I actually find this maybe most compelling. This is his way of showing that in the scribes and Pharisees' zeal to trap Jesus and not knowing the Torah, they ignore the Torah. Because you will see, this whole text is something that we don't have in an individualistic, non-honor-shame culture. This text actually is an example of an ancient Near Eastern practice of an honor contest. Now, in order to describe what an honor contest is, let's ask another glaring question of the text, possibly the million-dollar question. Oh, let's up it, inflation. The billion-dollar question to the text. What did Jesus draw right in the sand? Or the dirt? What is going on there? Why don't we know? The text takes a lot of effort to point out, he draws, then they ask him again, then he, you know, says, hey, we have that sin cast for stone, goes back to drawing. Uh, and I just say writing, it actually says writing. What in the world is he writing? There have been a number of answers and ideas put forward. Uh, you get the idea that uh, from Ambrose of Milan, uh, and he, in 300, uh, the 300s AD, posited that he was writing the names of the scribes and Pharisees in the dirt to evoke Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. That's an interesting text because right before this, Jesus refers to himself as the fountain of, li fountain of living water and the old feast of water and the feast of booths. And then he's going to write possibly their names in the dirt, saying, hey, you guys have been taken out of the honor of, you are so far from the heart of my father, your names are written in the dirt as ones who have been cast away. Or you get Byzantine scholarship, who says he was writing people's sins in the ground. And says, hey, you know, just like writing out all their sins, and says, hey, he without sin cast the first stone. By the way, I know what you did last summer. And possibly. More recent ideas, if you go to more recent scholarship, uh, is that he's writing, uh, he's trying to evoke Exodus 23, 1 through 3, where it says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. And so this one actually is kind of saying, like, maybe they are making this up. Now, I don't find that one as compelling because Jesus does say to her at the end, hey, I don't condemn you, but do go and sin no more. Or he could be staring at the ground because he's protecting the woman's honor. Likely she was brought out naked. And you have him just continuing to persistently stare at the ground because he is seeking to give this woman 
as much honor and dignity or protect as much honor and dignity that's trying to be taken from us. Or, this is actually what I find most consistent or most uh, compelling, uh, you get the evoking idea that God wrote Torah with his finger in the book of Exodus to Moses. I find that most compelling because there's a lot of times that we've already talked about that is evoking Moses in the book of Exodus all through the book of John. It's clear that he's trying to really bring up the book of Moses, or the book of Exodus, Moses, and it's the idea of God writing Torah, just saying that he is God and he doesn't devalue the Torah. Or also there's the hand that shows up in Daniel that writes on the wall that says the rulers should be put on notice that they are being taken down. And he is evoking the image of Daniel, that the rulers, the leaders in this moment should be taking notice because they are going down. Regardless, it's the wrong question. It does not have any desire to answer it because you were not meant to ask, what is he writing? You were meant to ask, how is he writing? It's an illiterate culture. He is a carpenter, turns rabbi, never having studied other than under John the Baptist, who was a controversial rabbi. Scribes were a completely elite class. There was, it's hard to communicate and overstate how much importance you had in a culture because you could write. Very few people could do it. I mean, even look at the works of Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, but if you see most of it, you know, he wrote with a scribe. And it wasn't probably just so he could pace back and forth and, you know, sermonize and postulate. No, he used a scribe. In fact, there's even the moments where he says, hey, look, I write this with my own hand. Which is partially to say, hey, I really want to emphasize this. This is coming straight from me. It's also to say, check it out. <laughs> I write this with my hand. Josephus, who is one of the most robust writings that we have of Jewish scholarship, uh, he had to have help writing in Greek. Writing is a huge deal. You're not meant to ask, what is he writing? You're meant to stand back and say, holy cow, he's writing. Because again, this is an honor contest. They've deliberately tried to approach him and put him in an honor contest. What an honor contest was is that if you had a person who, a person or a group of people, who believed that someone was taking too much honor for themselves, they were trying to pull in too much and they weren't worthy of it, they would challenge them publicly. This happens to Jesus and the Pharisees a lot. You get the whole, uh, hey, should we pay taxes to Rome? That's one of their honor contests that they have with him. Uh, you have the moment when it's like the weird thing of like, hey, well, let, let me tell you about a woman who got married to this man and he died and then married all seven of his brothers and they all die. Who will she be married to in the resurrection? That was also an honor contest. Uh, you get also, what is the greatest commandment? Saying this, saying this to test him. All of these are examples of honor contests that play out in this time. If you were in an honor contest and if you were pretty even, like your honor like, it was kind of like, this is a legit, like, I don't know the way this is going to go. Like, your honor level on Madden was both 75, and you would then go head-to-head, -head and it would be the sense of, like, okay, who is more knowledgeable, who's more wise, who can sit, get the last word. If you had an honor contest between people who were despairingly different, there was one who's, no, clearly this is the more honorable person. The person who was more honorable didn't have to engage. He could ignore them. 
In fact, the only reason they would engage is because he was just so willing to risk his honor to put this person in their place. And the way that these were judged, because both parties can't be the ones who judge, like, you know, it's like every fight that ever happened. Everybody says they won. But the crowd is the one who is going to eventually either show they win by their cheers, by their giving of honor, or by them following one over the other. Ways that this just worked out, if you're like, okay, if, if you see this in other culture, in the book Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes, talks about in Papua New Guinea, honor contest, where if a person left their tribe to go and get educated, they come back, but they also come back as an outsider in the way, because they left the tribe. And so they get seated at the end of the table furthest from the chief. This is also evoked in scripture when they say, hey, when you go to a banquet, don't take the front of the table, go to the end of the table. And so they're seated farthest from the chief. If they feel they're deserving of greater honor, they would stand and ask the chief to judge them, to move them closer to the front of the table or all the way to the front of the table. And the chief could judge on his education isn't enough or he's been gone too long, or he could listen to the crowd and the crowd could either you know, give him applause and, and you know, pull out the chair of which they think he should be seating or all move down to show which way he should be seating. And he could listen to that and then call him up and he comes and sits in a higher seat. And this would be actually be a big win for the crowd if that happened because they all of a sudden are like, man, look at this person of honor who's come to our community. Look at this person of honor that we produced. And so, again, you have these pop up all the time. Likely um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he's trying to avoid one of these. Either because he doesn't, <laughs> he's kind of worried he'll lose, or he just has legitimate questions and he doesn't want them to get bogged down by an honor contest. He doesn't want to be sparring with Jesus. He actually wants to, and I actually think that's why Jesus talks with him and takes him so seriously. It's also interesting because in the text just before this, and this is another reason to say, hey, this actually belongs here, because in all of chapter 7, they are saying, hey, this guy's from Galilee. What prophet arises from Galilee? Who is this person? Have we believed in him? And they are clearly challenging his honor. Which is interesting, too. I just want to point out, again, not only the fact that I think that they, John is subtly pointing out that they are dishonorable by the way that they disobeyed Torah in order to catch Jesus in Torah. Uh, it's also interesting that in that last, or last chapter, and they said, does any prophet arise from Galilee? Yes. Five of them. And not just five of them. Jonah, Nahum, Hosea, Elijah, and Elisha. Who are like, arguably the primo prophets of all time. Elijah and Elisha, that is. The other ones, you know. I mean, it's, it, it would be like saying... We're, you know, tell me how many NBA stars have come from North Carolina colleges. And you'd be like, uh, well, uh, let's start with Michael Jordan and we'll work backwards from there. And again, it's a moment of John just subtly saying, these people are dishonorable in even the way they're approaching this and their, their zeal to dishonor Jesus. And I would say this, also, they are trying to trap him likely Maybe not completely because they just want to discard him and do away with him. It's possible they're saying, hey, we want you just to stay and play in our system. You could be helpful to us. You could be 
catalyzing for people. You could be a weapon against Rome. It would be really beneficial if you just played the game and stayed with us and edified us and, and put your endorsement on us. And so they want to dishonor him to put him back into the place of working with them. But Jesus continually rejects working with them, saying, no, you have so fallen away from the heart of my father. I'm not in league with you. And so it says it's a trap. What is the trap? If he lets her off the hook, he either doesn't know Torah or he chooses not to follow it. That's clear and that's pretty obvious. Now, it's a little bit less clear on if he judges her, like, okay, maybe it's like, okay, the crowd could, like, would not like the severity of it and be like, yeah, it's kind of a buzzkill. And, and that actually doesn't really hold up because they likely would have wanted to rid this person from their midst because of the shame she was bringing to them. They would have been down with, like, no, we, we need to kill her, exile or something. We need to get the shame off of us. There's a story in the Apocrypha, and if you don't know what the Apocrypha is, it is parts of Scripture that similar to this, but are even more dubious than parts of the Old Testament, namely, that, you know, show up in only some manuscripts there's not a ton of evidence for, and so they have enough doubt, we've just taken them out. Now, again, it's like, it's possible, some of them are real, it's possible, but it's just like, there's too much doubt, take them fully out, and... There is a story, well, let me, before I, I go on to that, let me just really quickly just speak to, okay, I'm quoting the Apocrypha, uh, or I'm, not quote, I'm evoking a story from the Apocrypha. Uh, we're talking about a text that's in double brackets. And I'll even go back to, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier, this L. Grove, uh, L. Grover Fricks and the Bama podcast. The way that you wisely engage in all these things as you engage with Scripture is not to just say, okay, well, this is the Apocrypha, so we can't get near it. It's like, no, there's, again, there's potential that some of these things are true. Now, we don't treat them like the Canaanite scripture. We don't treat them as fully inspired, and we put all our weight on them. Again, we don't pull out unique doctrine from it. If we say, if it's only supported by something in the Apocrypha, then you're on really shaky ground. But you can still, often as they did, they would treat it like commentary. They would treat it like, okay, these are ways that we grow. In fact, even the way that rabbis taught, there would be an oral tradition, and they would take a text, and they would have an oral tradition, and they would collect this as what they called the Midrash, and the Midrash was just all the oral tradition that had been collected over the years as a commentary of what scripture was. If you followed that rabbi, you treated that really seriously. Not the same as scripture, but really seriously. And I'll say, too, about uh, if you, if, I mean, if you're one who, like, you know, takes a podcast or an author that I talk about, and you're like, okay, that's interesting, I'd like to check that out more, if you listen to Baymo podcast, if you read L. Grover Fricks, there's a lot I disagree with him about, and, like, not just, like, small issues, like, really big issues, like, that are pretty important, and I disagree with him a lot. What she's taught on this is freaking brilliant. And so, I will say, everyone who I read, everyone who I listen to, I disagree with at least something from them. I mean, I don't agree with everything that C.S. Lewis wrote or thought. I don't agree with everything that Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Eugene Peterson, Tim Mackey, John Mark Comer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Henry Nouwen, uh, Martin Luther, or Dallas Willard teaches him. Now, Dallas Willard might be the closest. He might be closest. I'm like, okay, buddy, like, I got to really work, but I don't agree with that. Um, regardless, 
if you don't agree with someone, if they have doctrines that you're like, wow, that I think puts them way in disagreement of what I think, it's not a sense of like, okay, you reject everything that they say. At least I don't think that that's the way that we grow in wisdom. No, we grow, we, we see what they argue, we compare it to scripture, and we say, hey, this is good, this is helpful, this probably is not as good, this is probably not as helpful. And you grow in wisdom over time. I know we really clearly sometimes want, just give me the list of the people who are right and give me the list of the people that are wrong so I can read the people that are right and I can reject the people that are wrong. It's not that simple. It's never that simple. And so that's just, again, really kind of off topic, but I think helpful as we talk about the Apocrypha. So in the Apocrypha, there is a text that was included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's important to say, if it was included in the Septuagint, it probably has a little bit more confidence than other ones, even though it was taken out of the canon because it was still in doubt. But also, the scribes would have been well aware of it. This was not like a really obscure apocryphal text. This was, again, one that was included in the Greek transcript of the Old Testament, which we get a lot from the Septuagint. And it was at the end of the book of Daniel. And it's about a woman named Susanna. And in it, there's two elders, men of honor, who spy on her bathing. Of course, this is evoking to David and Bathsheba. And they go to assault her. And before they do, they tell her, if you fight, if you resist, or if you tell anyone, we will tell that you have been, you've had an affair with a man under a tree. She does fight, she does resist, and she fends them off. And so they bring her to court to dishonor her and to discredit anything she might say. And as she does, Daniel comes into the court and demands that the, those who are making the claim, the men that are making claim, be cross-examined. And so they are cross-examined, not just cross-examined, he says they need to be cross-examined separately. And their stories match, except they identify different trees. So they are judged, condemned, and killed. And the woman is exonerated. It's interesting to think, if you're going to challenge a guy who you think is this hick from the sticks, and you're like, hey, judge this and show us your edumacation, it was actually not be a bad idea to pick up like a rare apocryphal text that shows up in the Septuagint but doesn't show up in every part of Daniel and like, hey, can you work with this? Because again, this actually gives a lot more context to what the trap might be. Again, the trap, clearly, if he dismisses it, he's dismissing Torah. But if he condemns her but doesn't cross-examine her or doesn't cross-examine them, then he is judged without the wisdom of the likes of Daniel. But if he cross-examines her, they're in the temple gates, and it was a no-no to talk about lewd and improper talk in the temple gates. He is, in their minds, and seemingly very well, much so, in a lose-lose-lose situation. He can't condemn, he can't exonerate, he can't question. And so, picking up back in verse 3, we've been out of the text for a while, let's get back into it. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to her, 
Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to stone her. Interestingly enough, in verse 6, what you see him doing when he writes, two things. One, he's ignoring them. You're bringing an honor contest to me. This isn't an even match. I'm not, I don't have to engage with you. Secondly, again, he's writing. The scribes are sitting there watching this man who they think is completely a hick write. This is a moment where all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, this just got real. And then verse 7, they continue asking him, hey, they're like, no, you, I, we have more honor than you at least, or at least we're even, so we are going to continue to ask the question. And he doesn't have to, but he then engages this question and he does it with his own test. He said, hey, he is, who is without sin? Cast the first stone. It's interesting because he puts them in this place of either now they have to stone her or they have to let her go. Or if they do stone her, they are claiming to be without sin. And who in the Old Testament is depicted as being without sin? but the very person who Jesus is claiming to be, and they are trying to trap him that he is not. And so he just says, hey, if you're without sin, if you are the anointed Messiah, go ahead and stone her. What do you do? And so they one by one walk away. And then verse 9 through 11, we'll talk about them walking away with the oldest verse, which I think is a great detail, but let's get on to 9 here before we get there. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Has no one condemned you? Interestingly enough, he did stay because he was without sin. He could have, in that moment, judged her. He could have stoned her. He could have exiled her. He could have been her judge. It's a legit sin. This is not healing on the Sabbath where he just says, you guys are missing it. This is legitimate. This is clear Torah. But he shows mercy. He shows mercy over justice and violence. And this is important because there's so many times when we read, particularly the Old Testament, we get this picture that God is just this God of judgment. And then Jesus comes and shows mercy. When, if you read the Old Testament with a clear eye of what was going on in their culture, you see God of the Old Testament being rich with mercy. I mean, even from the jump when Adam and Eve 
when he says, hey, don't eat from the tree of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. The day they eat of it, death does enter the world, they do not surely die. And that's a moment of like, you know, like, what is that? Is that like the moment where you're like with your kids, you're like, if you do that, then you have no TV for a week, and then like all they do it, and you're like, shoot, their TV time is my rest time. So you know what? Uh, maybe not. Uh, and it's not God like all of a sudden realizing, oh shoot, I overpromised the punishment. But it's truly God in a way that I don't fully understand. Yes, knowing all things, but saying it to them, no, I'm going to show mercy on you. Or you get in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, when the Lord says his name for the first time to Moses or delivers who he is and his identity, it says the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's interesting to point out there is on one side of a scale, picture a scale of justice, on one side of the scale, he will judge to the third and fourth generation. But, and the implied here, it only says to thousands, it's actually implied that it's the same as the generations. He will show mercy to thousands of generations. It's meant to give you the picture of like, it's three to four versus thousands. It's not evenly freighted. And so, you also, by the way, get God working with Israel, sending them prophets for 400 years before he exiles them. That's twice as long as America has existed. And then as he comes in as Jesus, he brings sinners, tax collectors, zealots, and murderers in the name of Yahweh. He brings in the Roman soldiers and a woman caught in adultery. What I find really compelling about this is that Jesus wins this honor contest. They all, the crowd walks away. They protect this woman's honor, and they side with Jesus. Okay, there's nothing to see here. That's a clear moment of that's who won the honor contest. He wins the honor contest, not to, in that moment, look at the Pharisees or, you know, look at the next time and just be like, you know, booyah. He does it so that he can sacrifice his honor and give it to this woman. This is a picture of, when we talk about the idea of Jesus coming and taking our sin, which clearly in this moment he's going to say, hey, I don't condemn you. I'm going to take the sin away from you. But also when we talk about the idea of what Jesus has done for us, we also talk that he has given us his honor, which is a microcosm shown in this text. Hey, I have all honor and all authority. I have all power because I'm not just a leader. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just somebody who figured a bunch of stuff out. I am God. And I win the honor to now give you my honor. For those in Christ, your sin is taken, yes, and you receive the honor of Jesus. A lot of times we talk about, like, oh, my sin is forgiven. Yes, great, that gets you back to zero. And now a lot of people think, like, okay, I don't have to go earn the honor of sanctification. Not at all. You have been given honor of Jesus. Also, I will say that he does say go and sin no more, though. Jesus does give her the wisdom. He, 
he also gives her the commandment, hey, go, don't go any further. I mean, there's, this is the same as the man at the pool who gets uh, the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida. He says, hey, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's clear to say, like, hey, I am coming to remove sin. I'm coming to give you honor. But the power of the Spirit that cleanses us from sin, that removes the weight and the shame and the guilt of sin, also empowers us to slowly but surely grow in the image of Jesus. Because sometimes we can take that other sense, like I've removed all sin, I've received all honor, and therefore it doesn't really matter about sanctification. Here's what's wrong with that. I don't know a single person who has come out of addiction recovery that's like, man, I really wish I could have kept doing that. I mean, I, just, I gave it up because I have to, but I really wish I could have continued to go to a well that was giving me more and more diminishing return and was controlling my life and I was imprisoned by. I don't know any person who says with their sin after, I mean, I know lots of people who when you're in the midst of it, protect it, fight against it, will react heavily against it. Again, when you go, that moment of when you actually come to an intervention, you know, if you're uh, somebody who's in addiction, you're not just like, oh gosh, thank you in that moment. But I don't know anyone who has been freed from their sin and said, man, I just wish I could go back and taste that again. Again, in a moment of weakness, you might, but in any moment of clarity, you're like, that was a prison. That was hell. And so the idea that, man, I'm freed and now I've given the honor of Jesus, so now I can do what I want, just doesn't make sense categorically because nobody wants to be trapped in the bondage of sin. You don't, I don't. And the good news of the gospel is not just that we're freed from the shame, but that we are freed from the power. Now, as Satchel taught last week, it's a slow drip. It's a long road and process, and you and I are all on it. But how good is Jesus that he says, hey, I've, I don't condemn you. Now go walk out of bondage into freedom. He works with her. He doesn't just condemn her. He works with her. He listens to her. She sees him as Lord in the passage. She's going to call him Lord. He works also with the crowd. He doesn't dismiss them, saying you're of ill intent. He works with them. He points out their sin. He shows them who he is. And they leave, starting with the older ones, which I don't have time to talk about the beauty of humility as you get older and become less and less obsessed with yourself. Not always. You don't have to, but it is a great blessing to become less and less obsessed with yourself. But Jesus has come, and he comes to free us from condemnation, and so now he says, hey, get in community. Fill your mind with wisdom and truth about who God is and how he controls all things, but yet is intimately providing for you. So therefore, look at the birds of the field and the grass of the field and say, are you not way more important to them or to me than them? Will I not surely take care of you like I do every bird and every blade of grass thousandsfold? And continue to live in a way in which you grow in bearing other burdens and serving and growing and getting free from the prison, stepping out of the darkness into light. Slowly live as one who's filled with love, one who's filled with joy, with peace, with patience, 
kindness and goodness, with faithfulness, one who just doesn't like freak out all the time because, oh my gosh, I don't see this thing working out, but just like, no, like I just, it's crazy. This is a really bad situation. How is God going to work this out for good? I'm fascinated. Gentleness and self-control. It's a slow drip, but it's worth the process. A way that we recognize the slow drip of this is the continual coming back to communion every week. Communion is the rehearsing of, I am cleansed afresh from the blood of Jesus. It wasn't just the moment of baptism. It wasn't just the moment of faith. I am continually cleansed. But also, I take the power that raised Jesus from the dead when his body was broken and his blood was shed into me. And that spirit, that power that raised him from the dead, that is now working in me to bring me into the fullness of maturity and Christ-likeness. I take week in and week out because in that slow drip, a little piece of bread, a little dip of wine, it slowly, well, juice, uh, it slowly but surely is taking me towards Christ-likeness in a long fight that often I'm losing, but because uh, we have the spirit, we have the body of believers around us, we continue to hold on and fight, and we continue to push forward another day. So come, declare that for the believers in here with the moment of communion, the forgiveness of sin, and also the filling of the spirit to move forward in Christ-likeness. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe, we've said sometimes, we're totally, you don't have to come down here and be like, everyone else is coming. Like, it's totally fine. It's normal just to be like, no, that's not what I believe, and that's fine. I'm here, I'm learning, I'm growing, or I'm interested. Maybe I just showed up here one time. As you come forward, you break the bread, dip it in the cup, come down the center aisles, or turn to the side. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us the joy of seeing that you have won the honor, and you continually win the honor, not to hoard it, but to give it generously. Lord, that in this moment, you're declaring us in our sinfulness and our brokenness of this very week as having all the honor of Jesus. And you are also filling us with your spirit so that we might go and sin no more, so that we might break free from all that which binds, from all that which entangles, from the prison and the hell we find ourselves trapped in, which is our own sin. And so, Lord, I pray for us to not base the sense that we are saved on the fact that we are growing in Christ-likeness, but base the fact because we are saved, because we have your honor, we now can continue to slowly, surely, and empowered by the Spirit, grow in Christ-likeness. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.